Justice and Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina is now sitting to the dispatch of business. God save the state and this honorable court. Good morning, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here with us. Uh, late 1830s to the early 1860s, the Supreme Court of North Carolina would uh, leave the heat of Raleigh to come to a more pleasant setting in Morganton. Uh, our state constitution uh, says that we will, uh, the Supreme Court will sit in Raleigh or such other places the General Assembly may designate. Uh, Justice Irvin and I were able to persuade the General Assembly that Morganton would be a good spot in Western North Carolina for us to <clears throat> bring the court. Uh, and so we are uh, grateful to be here with y'all. Uh, we have to say that the folks here in uh, Morganton, Burke County are so gracious and we appreciate uh, all that they've done. Uh, we. Uh, You'll notice that there are only six of us up here as opposed to seven. Justice Hudson uh, is having to go through the protocol. And when I say through the protocol, y'all know what that means now. Three years ago, we would have been going, what's that all about? But uh, we know. Uh, so she is joining us through uh, the miracle of live stream. Uh, and uh, she will, from time to time, text <laughs> Justice Irvin uh, if she has any questions. So Justice Irvin is not doing his social media post when he's checking his phone. He is uh, uh, simply uh, seeing what uh, Justice Hudson would like us to ask. Uh, also, uh, if you all know anybody who has signed up for the last case for today, um, uh, please tell them that that case will not be argued. Uh, one of the just one of the attorneys came down with COVID and uh, so uh, he was not able to make the trip up here. So we will not have that case. Uh, we're sorry for any inconvenience that may cause folks uh, who were uh, looking forward uh, to being with us in the arguments. Uh, we appreciate council uh, being here with us. Uh, the council in this case uh, had to substitute in for another COVID case that had come up, and we appreciate y'all's flexibility in being with us this morning. <coughs> uh, the first case that we have is NRAE EDH. Um, yesterday we had a juvenile case, and I felt like that folks came a little close to identifying some of the folks in it, and of course we do these cases without the identity of uh, the parties, so this won't to be sure that I'm uh, reminding everybody of that. Um, we'll hear from the appellant. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Pete Wood. I'm the attorney for the mother. In this case, this is an appeal of a termination of parental rights case out of Wilkes County, North Carolina. Um, thank you very much for granting oral argument. I intend to speak for about 20 minutes and I'll reserve whatever time I have left for rebuttal. It's good to be back in person. Um, the last time I argued before the court, it was virtually, and my brand new computer crashed, and I lost all audio. And that was a lot of fun. 
Took about half an hour to figure that out, and they patched me through on my cell phone. Yesterday, my wife had a virtual work meeting, and one of the participants had a screaming baby on his lap for the entire meeting. So it's good to be back in person where those things don't happen. It's good to be back in Morgan. So this case is pretty straightforward, I think. And I think there's not a lot of dispute about the facts or really about the law. Now, the application, we disagree about that. But let me just tell us, tell how we got here. This is the termination of, termination of parental rights case, August 25th, 2020. Judge Houston presided over a termination of parental rights case in Wilkes County. At, uh, that day in court, she announced she had found grounds to terminate, but she was holding her ruling in abeyance. Now, it gets kind of sketchy at this point because there were, there were no further hearings in the case in open court. But from what I can gather, something happened on August 28th where some of the parties were there and she announced in chambers that she had found it in the best interest of the child to terminate rights. She made no findings of fact and no conclusions of law. Nothing happened in the case until December 31st, 2020. Mr. Wood, just as a, matter of, as a matter of fact, I read the transcript to suggest there was some question about uh, for this in-chambers meeting as to, initially as to whether Ms. Hamby could be present, but that nobody else seemed to be expressing any difficulty in being there. And at least if I read the transcript correctly, Ms. Hamby ultimately indicated that she could be present. Was there any party that wasn't at this meeting that uh, the record reflects? Uh, the record isn't terribly clear on that. I did. So first of all, I was not the trial attorney on right. this. So my personal knowledge is based on what happened after I was appointed in March and, of 2021. And, and we are, of course, have to operate off the record anyway. So that's, right. that's um, But all I know is at the TPR hearing, the, the guardian attorney and the attorney for the attorneys for the two parents indicated they could be there. And there was some question about whether or not Ms. Hamby would participate via phone or if she could be there in person, and it was not resolved at that point. Well, so, I mean, it, 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 at least it, this is at page 127, so I, the court, so I'll get up. I'm here Thursday, okay. I would suspect I'd see every one of you, but Erica Thursday, so and that's Ms. Hamby as I understand it, so we'll get Erica on the phone and we'll have a conversation and I'll let you get back to your clients. Ms. Hamby, inaudible, and I'm aware that we're working off of recording machines here rather than you know stenographers. Right. Uh, hearing Officer Morell, whoever that is. Uh, okay, Erica, okay, we'll all be here Thursday, all right. I'll try to look at the stuff and we'll Thursday, I'll tell you what we're gonna do and I'll get Erica to do the order, obviously, okay, question mark. And I'm assuming the reference to Hearing Officer Morell probably should be to the trial court. Right. Is that, is that what we know about the uh, who was at that hearing? Well, so the trouble is they're talking about Thursday and then August 28th is a Friday. So we have no clue who is available on Friday. Um, I, you know, I, I can tell you from, from conversations with people, I, I know that uh, my client's attorney and the attorney for the father were there when she announced the best interest ruling. That's not in the record, but just from conversations, they told me they were there. Um, 
It's not terribly clear. We just know what they forecast they could do, and they held it on a different date, which sort of threw all the conversations, you know, out the window. Let, let, let me ask you this. We got a finding by uh, the judge who did sign the order, uh, Chief District Court Judge Byrd, uh, that says findings of fact, conclusions of law, and decretal announced in chambers on the 28th day of August 2020 by the Honorable Jeannie R. Houston. Uh, and it seems like to me that the real dispute is, did that happen? Um, yes. Would there, would there be a problem in sending it back to the trial court to say, you've made this finding with regard to what happened on August the 28th. We need more details on that to be sure that this order that's entered was Judge Houston's order and not something you did. I think that would make a lot of sense to send it back for further findings. You know, one issue I have with these cases is that often matters happen after the last hearing, right? But then the rules of, of appellate procedure provide that the record shall contain matters that were before the trial court, which is all great until you're in a situation like we have here today where the whole gist of the appeal deals with things that happened after the hearing. So they deal with matters that were not before the trial court. And that's just sort of this weird kind of loophole in the appellate rules. So I don't know how you resolve that unless you have further findings or unless there could be some sort of stipulation. I mean, there's a stipulation in the record in this case that Judge Houston retired on December 31st, and that's public, public record. Now, there's no public record about what happened with these hearings. And, and I talked to the clerk and I talked to the court reporter and there were no further hearings in the case because when I saw that on December, 20, on August 25th, my first thought was, okay, there has to be another hearing here at some point. Somebody forgot to transcribe it. But there wasn't another hearing and that's why we're here today because it's not clear at all. Am I right in thinking that it seems like everybody agrees that if these findings were done by Judge Houston, and all Judge Burr did was sign the order in his role as Chief District Court Judge pursuant to the statute, then that would be okay. But if Judge Byrd is the one who maybe looked at some of the notes and decided that, hey, I can fix an order based on whatever these are, and that it ended up being Judge Byrd's findings when he wasn't the judge who presided at the hearing, then that would be the problem. Am, am I correct in thinking that's where we are with regard to this case? You are 100% correct. That's the way I see it. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so Judge Byrd signed the order February 15th of 2021, which was six, seven weeks after Judge Houston retired. And the, the problem is we just we have this huge black box from the 25th of August until December, I'm sorry, until February 15th of the following year. We just don't know what happened. And that's really problematic uh, because the case law and all this is pretty straightforward. Only the trial judge, the judge who heard the case has authority to enter an order, make the findings of fact, conclusions of law and enter the order. Um, and that's pursuant to the rules of civil procedure, Rule 52, Rule 58, 
and then Rule 63. But there is a narrow exception, that's Rule 63, that says, but a subsequent judge can enter an order, but only in these very limited circumstances, which would be, number one, the first judge has to be unavailable. And that happened in this case, there's no question. Being retired is unavailable, that's in the statutes. Um, and the second thing is that the order has to be entered in purely a ministerial fashion. And my read on the case law, it goes back a couple generations, is that what that's saying is that the order has to be complete. Uh, there's cases uh, like in Ray RP where the parties all made massive amounts of stipulations as to what the findings would be, and a second judge signed the order, but there were findings outside those stipulations, so that made the order a nullity. And if the order is a nullity, it has to be remanded back to the trial division for either the initial judge to um, prepare the order or for a new hearing to take place. Although Wisnant has kind of an odd ruling, and it says that it should be remanded back for a new hearing before the initial judge, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't know why you would do that if the initial judge has already heard the hearing, but that's the ruling in, in WISNAT. Well, um, it, one of the questions that occurred to me was, assuming that we're in the position that your argument suggests that we're in here, which is that there are facts we don't know, what, or that there are important facts that we don't know, there are always facts we don't know, uh, important facts that we don't know, what's the proper remedy? I mean. Noticing appeal is potentially one. Uh, in CMC, there was a, a Rule 60 motion filed in, uh, that resulted in a determination that the wrong judge had signed the order without authorization to do so, and therefore it was a nullity. Uh, given the way that the court system works, what's the best way, in your view, to solve the problem of lack of, lack of knowledge? I would say the best thing to do would be to send it back to the trial division and they're the best position to sort of figure out what to do and to give them several options. I would say the options would be that uh, Judge Houston, and I don't practice in Wilkes County, so I am unaware if Judge Houston has come back as an emergency judge or something. She may have, I don't know. But at my last hearing was that she was, uh, had retired. Uh, for Judge Houston can enter the order or uh, for a new judge to hear the case, or Rule 60 motions are certainly a remedy where the parties can work something out. Um, and I think that the trial attorneys are in a better position to do that than certainly the appellate attorneys are. They know the facts of the case better. But yeah, I would, I would say that that would be my suggestion. What's your position on the Garnett Lightham's suggestion in the brief uh, submitted by the GAL that instead of sending the matter back for any findings of fact or conclusions of law, that under Rule 63 and the Lane case, that the judge that signed the order, who here would be the chief district court judge, should be free to utilize his or her own discretion as to whether or not he or she feels as though he or she should be involved to the extent of just signing the order like the chief district court judge did here. Well. A judge does have discretion, but a judge doesn't have unfettered discretion. And my response to that would be that we still don't know what happened and that the case should be remanded back, be remanded back to the trial division. Um, I, the case law 
in, in these types of cases hasn't been disturbed for, for years. There's, there's not a lot of case law on it, and this court has authority to change that. But the case law is all on the same page, and basically it, it says that for, for good reasons, a person has the right to have a hearing, has the right to have the judge who hears the case decide the facts and the conclusions of law, and that's codified in the rules of civil procedure. And I think that if we circumvent that and allow a different judge to sign the order, they were effectively saying you don't have the right to have a hearing. When you mention unfettered discretion, is that an acknowledgement that discretion was available to be utilized here and that it was just exceeded by the chief district court judge or that discretion was inappropriate to use here such that any level of discretion should not have been utilized? Well. Judge Byrd is not forbidden from signing an order. He's just limited by Rule 63. So there is, I'm, I'm not going to say that he can never sign an order, because he should be able to look at it and determine if it's a complete order or not. But what I'm saying is that in this case, there's just not, the record doesn't support that. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Wood, the record doesn't support what? doesn't support a finding that Judge Houston had a hearing in, in chambers where she dictated the entire order, which would be what had to happen to get around uh, all the cases on this, in Ray RP, Savage, Wisnant, and the rules of civil procedure. Let me ask it this way. Sure. Did the Chief District Court Judge have the discretion to sign this order administratively and ministerially? In this case, he did not because I think the record does not support a finding that Judge Houston gave out all the findings of fact and conclusions of law in the order. All I could find from the record is that she announced she had found ground, she found two out of three grounds, and that she had at a later date made a decision to terminate rights. But there's nothing in the record suggesting that she in chambers had drafted an entire 11-page order. And that raises questions. I mean, if she did draft the entire order back in, on August 28th and read it to everybody, then why wasn't the order entered at that point? You know, if it was complete, Unless Judge Houston is just reading off the top of her head an 11-page order, which I think is highly improbable, at least I can't do that, um, then I would assume that she had written something down. If she wrote something down, the age of internet and um, you know being able to email files, why not just email that to the county attorney who would then make it into an order and it would, that would be the end of it. But for whatever reason, and we don't know what happened, nothing happened in the case until February 15th, and there, it's when the order was signed. I mean, that, that, that could be established in the record. Things happened in the case, but I, we're, we're, we're curtailed by the record. It's just not in there. So how much weight should we give to the statements in this order signed by the chief district court judge that says findings of fact conclusions law decreed or announced in chambers 28th day august by the honorable Jeannie r houston administratively and ministerially ministerially signed by the chief district court judge should i mean is 
how much probing should we do when we have one of our judges saying, this is what happened? I think every judge has to have something to support a finding of fact and conclusion of law. I mean, if there had been a number of findings in this case, a determination order that described things that the mother had done that were not, not in the record, that wouldn't be acceptable. And there just is nothing in the record to support that. If, if, it's, if it's something that only the judge knows, then that really doesn't meet the standard for findings of fact and conclusions of law. So, so if we were to send it back to Judge Byrd, what would we ask him? Would we say, uh, you've made these statements in your order. Um, tell us what occurred that supports those findings. Um, I think there would have to be some sort of hearing where evidence would be put on. And I think there, that something would have to be on the record to show what happened. And, and then we're also <coughs> dealing, as I understand it, Judge Bird's about to retire. So we have and it opens up a huge other can of worms if that takes a long time to happen. But that's just what I've heard. Well, is, is it a hearing or is it simply Judge Byrd explaining why he would make these two statements? In other words, he could say, uh, uh, you know, we were going through uh, Judge Houston's files after she retired. We found out that she had this order she'd never signed, uh, therefore, I put these two statements at the end of it, and I signed it. Would, wouldn't that solve, if, if that were his statement? Wouldn't that well, solve it? Well, perhaps, but then there's a statement that on August 28th, all these things were said, and if he announces and calls every, all the parties back and says, look, I'm gonna say on August 28th, the judge said all these things, and then trial attorney for my client stands and says, hey, you know what, I was there August 28th, that didn't happen, you weren't there, and I assure you, that did not happen, unless there was some sort of meeting between the two of you. Um, and once again, we're just sort of, we're dealing with not knowing what happened after August 25th. There's a detailed transcript in that date, and then there's this sort of speculation. Well, isn't the key question whether this, the draft, this order, which has very detailed findings of fact, whether that was drafted and reviewed by Judge Houston um, and just not signed? Because if it, if it wasn't, then, aren't we, then doesn't Judge Byrd's signature go beyond a ministerial function? Well, if, if Judge Houston prepared the entire order before she retired, then Judge Byrd has the right to sign that order, but we just don't know if she did that or not, and that's the issue we're facing. Um, we, just, we just don't know. I will say that in this county, as most counties, and uh, Justice Morgan and I worked in uh, this courtroom in Wake County for a number of years. We know how orders were done down there. The orders are drafted by the prevailing party in a contested case, and then they are sent to people, to, to the opposing parties to review and also CC the judge, and, and eventually there's sort of negotiations where any dispute is ultimately settled by the judge. So unless they broke from that in Wilkes County, there would have had to have been involvement of all the parties. Um, 
at least the way these cases are traditionally done, but they may not have done it that way, and once, once again, we just don't know. So that's, that's the uh, essence of my argument, unless there's some questions from Justice Hudson. No, she and I have had some discussion about whether to ask questions, but so far, uh, unless this is one right here, uh, I guess her question would be if we, if, if we quote, just don't know, close quote, what happened, uh, do we have to have a hearing in your view? I think we have to have some sort of a court proceeding where at least the parties can discuss what happened and have an opportunity to make motions and respond to things. I don't, you're also stuck with the awkward position of the attorneys being witnesses and the judges being witnesses in a hearing. I don't know if that's to be a full-blown evidentiary hearing, but I think there has to be some sort of proceeding in open court where this matter is at least discussed. That, that, that would be my response. Well, for, for future reference, there's a provision in the uh, rules of appellate procedure that allows the inclusion of statements uh, settled in accordance with the rest of the record concerning what happened in uh, bench conferences and things of your uh, unrecorded uh, charge conferences, things like that. Would that be a better practice in the future to, to have to this kind of issue dealt with in such a statement? The record settlement process at least provides for that. Yes, I, I agree with you. I was unable to secure those statements before the record was settled. I, I attempted to, and I was only in the last week or so able to find out the, the, the contentions of my client's trial attorney. But I had tried last year, was I unable to I do may, that? It may, it may be wandering far afield, but when I did a record and had that position, sometimes I wound up just writing a statement, putting it in the, the uh, proposed record and then seeing what happened with the court having the right to settle it later if somebody objected to the accuracy of it. I think that that would make sense. I agree with that. But one problem I had was I was unable, until last week, I did not know the official position of my client's trial attorney. I had tried to reach him and was unable to get in touch with him until last week when he and I finally communicated. And I don't really know why that happened, but it did. Before you take your seat, uh, in looking at your brief, you say that we, quote, should vacate the termination order and remand to the trial division with instructions to dismiss the petition to terminate parental rights, unquote. Are you apparently from your oral argument uh, summation saying that you'd be satisfied on behalf of your client to have the matter to go back on the order itself to get more information about the order? Or are you still standing by your brief's request uh, that we vacate the judgment and dismiss the petition for the TPR? I would be satisfied if the court were to send it back for, for further proceedings to figure out exactly what it was that happened with this court order. Yes, I would be, I'd be satisfied with that. Unless there are any further questions, I am going to reserve my remaining time for rebuttal. And thank you very much for granting oral argument. Thank you, counsel. We'll hear from the appellee. Good morning, and may it please the court. I'm Erica Hamby. I represent the Wilkes County Department of Social Services. Um, and along with Mr. Armbruster, we will be arguing on behalf of um, 
the order in front of the court. I plan to use 15 minutes um, to address the interplay of rules 52, 58, and 63. Um, and if this order were deemed not to be valid, um, what would then happen next? Mr. Armbruster is going to address um, the judge's discretion under Rule 63. Um, first, I think it's important. Um, the appellant argues that case law is settled, that all findings must be made and um, all conclusions made. And in, in writing is what we have in front of us in all of the case law that goes back to Coggins. Um, however, it's interesting. All our case law cites Coggins and cites the rule that the court has to do three things in writing. But in fact, Rule 52 doesn't require writing. The word writing or written doesn't appear in Rule 52. Um, rule 52 says the court must or shall find the facts specifically and state separately its conclusions and direct the entry of an order. It doesn't even say, as Coggins, that they are to enter judgment accordingly. They are to direct the entry of the order. Um, and we've had years, um, I believe uh, Mother's Council cited pretty much all of them. We have Wisnet, we have Coggins, we have um, CMC, we have Nutton. We have a history of cases trying to reconcile Rule 52 and 63. If 63 says someone can sign a uh, order administratively and, or, and ministerially, how many of those findings have to be made? We have, I believe, um, one of the cases cited actually goes so far as that they had all of these stipulations and it was not determined to be sufficient because in the case law, we're looking at this improper standard of written um, and trying to reconcile 52 requiring that a trial judge write everything down when they make the findings and 63 saying that someone else can enter it. Interestingly enough, rule 52, rule 63, rule 58, all the rules of civil procedure were adopted in 1967. Um, the case- they, They've been modified a few times. They since, did, and, and they've all been modified several times. In, um, rule 52 has only been modified twice. It was written in 67 and modified in 69. But there have been some substantial modifications made to the rules applicable to entry of judgment given confusion about when the notice of appeal had to be filed, if my memory is not failing. Oh, and that is that is correct. Rule 58 has had several, several um, uh, extensive different um, modifications. But if we're looking at Rule 52 and the writing requirement, um, Rule 52 codified in 67, there was a some amendment in 69. That is all that the statute reflects is that it's ever been um, amended. We have the case of Coggins, which is decided in 71, that says these three things have to be in writing, they have to occur. But interestingly enough, Coggins cites a 1957 case for that standard. It cites to Atlantic Coastline. At that point, the standard was General Statute 1, 185. Um, and Coggins incorrectly, it specifically cites Atlantic Coastline, but it incorrectly attributes that to Rule 52. Um, and then the litany of cases after Coggins quote Coggins and quote that the rule has, that the findings have to be in writing. 
Um, so are you suggesting that those cases were wrongly decided and we should reverse them? I, I'm suggesting that those cases, unfortunately, due to what I would assume would be a clerical error in citation, um, have been upheld throughout the process, though obviously you're sitting here de novo, it's a st statutory interpretation. Statute, you know, Rule 52, the statute does not say in writing, it does not say what those cases quote. Those cases quote that the court must do three things in writing. That phrase does not appear in Rule 52 and has not appeared in Rule 52, at least to my extent since 1969. Well, let's uh, just explore for a minute the purpose behind um, requiring the judge who actually hears the evidence to be the one who makes findings of fact and then um, conclusions of law. H how is that purpose um, served if, particularly where they are very detailed factual findings and fairly complex um, legal standards that need to be met, um, how is that purpose better served by not requiring it? Well, and I, this, it's not my job to say what the legislature chose to write, obviously. Legislature could have, when they adopted Rule 52, taken the same wording from the prior 1185 and included that requirement for writing, but they did not. Now, also at the same time, they also codified Rule 63, which allowed for the ministerial act. I presume, I, would, I unfortunately was not um, alive or a member of the General Assembly in 1967, so I can't even begin to say but I presume that they were noticing that the practice of law was changing. The practice of law was changing from what had been sort of the more archaic practice of law, the practice where the judge more likely did actually draft their own orders rather than a prevailing party drafting their orders. And they recognized that change. And instead of requiring that judge to be the one to put it in writing, they looked at it and said, they are to find the facts there to state the conclusions, and they are to then direct the entry of the order instead under the original um, case where they were to have entered the order. Help, help me understand why in this case what you're saying makes a difference. I mean, there's no question but that findings of fact and conclusions of law have to be made in termination of parental rights cases. Absolutely. And whether you do it in a separate document, whether you do it by dictating it into the transcript, which I know is the practice in some criminal, with respect to some criminal orders, or whether you do what typically seems to be the practice in which I personally think is a whole lot easier to work with as an appellate judge, is all in one document. The fact remains, though, that the cases say that the findings and conclusions have to, one, appear somewhere. And secondly, they have to be made by the trial court with the limited exception of whatever may be permitted by Rule 63. And in this case, we have one order that contains findings of fact and conclusions of law and the judgment of the court, which is not signed by Judge Houston, who heard it, but rather by Chief Judge Byrd, who signed a document we don't know exactly from this record, y'all may know because you know things about this case that we don't know and are not supposed to know. Uh, all we know is that we've got a, a, a traditional termination order uh, signed by a judge different than the one that the record reflects heard the order, which you're generally not supposed to do based on a, a you know, long line of cases. 
with Judge Byrd having then made a determination that he was acting ministerially, and we don't know anything beyond that. I mean, that's practically where we are. I'm trying to understand what your argument says about the validity of that process. Well, and ideally, we would have a situation where judges put everything on the record. Obviously, that's well, the we, ideal. We, 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 don't, <laughs> we, don't, we don't, you know, it's, it's, you can't put everything in the order without including basically a transcript in the order. But, you know, given that we are where we are, given that there is concern expressed about whether Rule 63 has been complied with or not, what, what is an appellate court supposed to do with that? Well, and I don't want to step on Mr. Armbruster's argument, but I think at this point... I, I, mean, he, I think he just indicated it would be fine if you stepped on <laughs> I, I think if you've got a chief district court judge, presumably they're the judge who has been overseeing this other judge that they're signing for. They know that judge's procedures. They know that judge's ins and outs, their quirks. They presumably can pick up the phone and call that judge. 63 has that discretion for that judge to then say, I, acting as chief, feel that these are, in fact, the findings and conclusions made by the, the judge that is incapacitated for whatever the reason may be or unavailable. And I, based on my discretion, my knowledge of that judge, my working relationship with that judge, feel that I can sign this ministerially. If, if I did not feel if, so. If, if, if the trial court make such a determination, and Judge Byrd clearly did here, uh, to what extent is that determination subject to challenge by another party? Well, and I think that would be an abuse of discretion that, they, that someone I mean, could appeal and claim that that was an abuse of discretion. So you're not arguing then that because Judge Byrd included the language that appears at the end of the order, that that's the end of the inquiry? Pardon me? That that's the end of the inquiry, the making of a statement of the type that Judge, Mer Judge Byrd here is not conclusive. There's some potential for review later. I, I believe so. I, I mean, obviously, the lower courts always has, always has an option for review, either for abuse of discretion. Do, do, do the parties that are involved in the case have any right to have input into the decision as to whether Rule 63 ought to be invoked? I think trial counsel obviously were there at the time, and if they felt that for whatever reason there, the recitation did not reflect that of the. Um, well, I mean, you you described a set of circumstances. I mean, I mean, I realize we're just talking hypotheticals here, but let's assume that come January of 2021, after Judge Houston retires, Judge Bird does what you said, picks up the phone and calls. Uh, that's not going to be an instance in which a party is likely to even know it happened. Oh, right. I agree with that. But, is that? But again, sort of as was reflected, you know, there is the process that generally this, the documents are circulated and parents' attorneys do have the opportunity to make objections or suggestions or clarifications to the... And we have no idea whether that happened here or not based on our review of the record. Based on the record, we and do I'm not. And I'm trying very hard not to <laughs> solicit comments about what people... And I'm trying very hard not to, to give them to the court because they are not part of the record, Your Honor. Um, but that is the general practice as has been announced that they're, you know, the, the judge will ask somebody to draw the order and the order is generally circulated. That seems to be practice amongst most um, 
trial courts now is they obviously do not have the time to sit and draft their own orders um, due to the volume of cases before them. Based on the face of this order and looking at the language that the chief district court judge used in signing it, just on its face and looking at Rule 63, should this court give deference to the order and not go any further? I think Rule 63 allows that discretion for the judge, and I think unless there's some way that can be proved that there was an abuse of his discretion, that in fact the court should let it stand. Is that your primary argument, or are you also offering as an alternative agreement with the mother as to sending the matter back? Well, and I think it's interestingly enough, there's, um, as I briefed, if the order is not valid, then the appeal is not valid because there's not you can't appeal an invalid order. So at this point, if this order is not valid, there's still just not an order in the case. But, but just going back to your prior answer, where, where you said that um, the judge had the discretion, he said in the order he's exercising that discretion, that's the end of it, unless there's a showing of abusive discretion. But without the facts that help us know why he made that f finding, that this, this, um, these findings of fact and conclusions of law were entered in chambers. Without the underlying facts that, that, that help us know what the basis for that is, how do we even evaluate whether there was an abuse of discretion? And I can tell you hypothetically, I can't, obviously in this case, <coughs> it is silent, we don't have that. Hypothetically, if someone does that, then, um, affidavits from, count, from trial counsel could prove the abuse of discretion, things of that nature, then could bring it forth on appeal and show that abuse of discretion. This, obviously, in this record, we do not have that. Right, and so isn't the problem, since we don't have that, we can't um, simply affirm this order um, without that information? Well, I think the absence of an argument of abuse that's where we're standing here. We're standing here where there is not an argument of abuse of discretion. There are not. So in the absence of an argument of abuse of discretion, I think you, will, you understand that the trial court had discretion and he exercised it properly. Well, imagine that if what happened was that in chambers um, on this August 28th day, um, the, the um, Judge Houston said, I I'm, here's what my disposition is going to be. But no detailed findings were made, no con detailed conclusions of law were made, and the actual order was drafted some time much later after, the, and Judge Houston never looked at it. At that point, wouldn't it have been an abuse of discretion to go beyond the ministerial function of simply signing an order that the prior judge had reviewed and agreed and said, yes, these are my findings? If, in fact, Judge Houston had never looked at it and never, but again, that's where I think you leave it in the discretion of the chief, chief, chief district court judge. He could have said, hey, Judge Houston, here is this order that's been submitted. Will you review this? He may have called Judge Houston. We don't know what he did um, before he chose to sign it ministerially, but he could have taken whatever steps he felt necessary to feel that he had the authority to do that. Um, but I guess what I'm suggesting is that the that in the absence of knowing that, we can't assess whether there was an abuse of discretion. And I, I, all I can say is best practice may be to have the judge sign an affidavit with what he has done to determine his discretion. Um, obviously, that's not what happened here. 
Um, but that would maybe a best practice that could thwart off abusive discretion claims in the future. And if there are no further questions for me, I would yield to Mr. Armbruster. Thank you, Council. Good morning, Mitch Armbruster, the Smith Anderson Law Firm in Wake County Bar here this morning. Please join the court on the behalf of the guardian ad litem for the minor child. I think the court has been focusing on the correct issues in this case regarding, uh, you know, what uh, guardrails uh, exist under between uh, under Rule 63 and the extent of the judge's discretion, and whether uh, what happened in this case is appropriate to show that the judge uh, that they documented what happened before the original trial judge that heard the matter and then the chief district court judge that signed the case. This is not a case like Savage where uh, the judge who signed the order was just not the judge who heard the case and there wasn't a showing, you know, that the original judge wasn't available. Those are cases where there was no application of Rule, rule 63. Uh, but here, I think uh, Justice Newby's first question brought up the right point that we have a finding in the order, findings of fact, conclusions of law, decreed all announced in chambers on the 28th day of August 2020 by the Honorable Jeannie R. Houston. And there are no, there's nothing in the record to suggest that that uh, recitation is incorrect or, or didn't happen. Well, and, and I guess one of, Mr. Armbrister, one of the things I was struggling with in order to try to determine what effect to give to this statement. If you analyze it in traditional finding of fact and conclusion of law categories, and that may or may not be the correct way to look at it, but it would seem to me that we're saying one, that the Chief Judge Byrd is saying one, I acted administratively, and secondly, ministerially. Uh, those strike me as more akin to something that we would most of the time label as a conclusion of law rather than a finding of fact. And typically, I mean, one, would you agree or disagree if we were to impose those categories on this language? Would you agree or disagree with that characterization? It's perfectly okay to disagree, but the next question is going to be, if so, why? Uh, I, I guess this recitation, um, the, fir the first recitation, finding of facts, conclusions of law, I think that's supposed to be a factual recitation. What actually happened in this case? Um, and that's really the precursor to the judge's conclusion that he can administratively and ministerially signed it. Um, because if there was no, if this prior paragraph wasn't there about findings of fact, um, there would be no basis for which you can conclude the judge had the ability to enter this administratively under Rule 63, um, uh, that, that he would be able to do that. So I think when you're reviewing this case, um, you have to have some basis to understand if the judge had the ability to exercise his discretion to do so. So if this is not sufficient, the court would say there's, there's not enough information. But I, I would submit that this is sufficient to say there's a recitation that the judge did do it in their chambers. Ms. Hamby talked about the fact that um, there's not a requirement of a writing. And that, that and one tweak I'll add to that is the Wisnant case, you know, cites Rule 63 at the time, and Rule 63 at the time 
um, talks about findings and fact and conclusions of law are filed. Well, Rule 63 was amended about 15 years ago, and Rule 63, as it reads today, doesn't have that language about findings and fact conclusions of law being filed. Um, so that would suggest that them okay, being announced in chambers to, they would be. They do have to be of record somewhere. I mean, we can't just have somebody make oral findings of fact that are not taken down, not reduced to writing or put somewhere because then you'd never, you know, you just have evanescent spoken words without anything to tie them to. They've got to be some record of them, right? Well, I guess the question for this court is, and because there's not a decision. And I'm not talking the, about yeah. what judge, I'm not talking about necessarily this set of circumstances, but just findings of fact in general. But beyond what's in the actual order that was signed yeah. ministerially. I mean, you know, you can, I mean, you know, as, as I said in my discussion with Ms. Hamby, of course, in litigating suppression motions, for example, in criminal court, it's very common for the trial court at the end of the hearing to say, I just enter an oral order, but the court reporter takes it down, and therefore there's a record of it. You know, what, what if, in that way, there's no basis for disputing what the findings of fact were. Does anybody have a right to make to dispute whether uh, there were, in fact, findings of fact, conclusions of law, and decretal? Uh, presumably, there's a word missing there. Uh, announced by Judge Houston on uh, uh, August 28th, and if so, how would they go about doing it? I, I think there would be a basis, uh, Justice Sermon, to do that. So, if you're trial counsel at this matter, and those things didn't happen, you could file a motion to reconsider, you could file a Rule 60 motion. Uh, you know, the, the rules for what can be in the appellate record are not, you know, completely strained. They may not include, you know, a submission of, uh, that was, uh, didn't, that, that petitioner attempted to make in this case, which was denied because that wasn't in the record. However, anything that has been submitted to the trial judge in a matter, you know, even if it wasn't filed, if it was offered for submission under Rule 11, all those things can be made part of a record on appeal. So a letter to the court right after this is entered from uh, the, the parent's attorney that says, well, this actually never happened, or I didn't attend it and I object to this, or something like that. There would be some way to get it into the record before the court um, that, that what is recited here in the order did not happen. And, and I think that that could be a standard this court could adopt. It's not the only way the court can go because I hear you're grappling with this issue, but I would submit that that would be appropriate here and not as a gotcha or as an appellate loophole as Mr. Wood referred to it, but really as there's got to be, if, if as we're sitting here today, we have no reason to doubt that this didn't, that just, just didn't happen as it says in the order and no one objected to it because this is what happened, that the, the findings of fact and conclusions of law were announced in the chambers and this order was subsequently, you know, was prepared based on that and just was never signed by Judge Byrd. That's the record we have before us now. So I would suggest, Justice Sermon, that this is sufficient um, based under Rule 63, um, which currently doesn't require that there have been writing findings or whatever before the other judge takes it over for any subsequent uh, material um, that happens in the case. Um, but but I do agree it's a case that hasn't come. Except yes. that unless Judge Byrd was present at the August 28th meeting, how is Judge Byrd supposed to know what Judge Houston found, concluded, and ordered? I think it's on representation of counsel, the proposed order is to that this is what happened. You're correct. There's no, there's no, um, 
because there's no other record that I'm aware of, and there's certainly nothing in the record that shows that happened. So in terms of, you know, this court's, you know, the termination of parental rights cases are important cases. No doubt we're terminating the rights of a parent, we're protecting the rights of the children. So if the court finds that, um, that, that this is not sufficient, that would be the court's determination in this case. From my reading of the cases uh, and this recitation here with no evidence that this did not happen, I don't think there would be a basis um, to overturn on this case because if there was, if this did not happen or something, there's no preservation. If the court finds that there needs to be more than that, um, than what's in this order, then I think the order would have to be uh, remanded for a further hearing. I don't think you necessarily need to reverse what happened. If you're saying there needs to be more evidence put in the record to be upheld, then it can be remanded at that point and the trial court can determine whether this order as entered can be upheld with additional evidence or whether they need to have additional hearing. Let, let me ask you a question that I asked Mr. Wood, which and I think I forgot to ask Ms. Hamby and I apologize for that. Uh, given that typically this type of issue requires additional factual development that's not generally contained in an appellate record, what is the appropriate method for challenging it if you've got a party like Mr. Wood's client who contends that an order was not properly entered under Rule 63? So if there was a rule, I think one option would be a Rule 60 motion where I know that in that case the, the trial court could only enter an advisory order, I believe, um, and but the, the court could be advised if the trial court was going to grant a Rule 60 motion, the Supreme Court remand the matter back. The bill, uh, the bill versus Martin. Yeah, exactly, Your Honor. Um, otherwise, I think, you know, if there were if there were proceedings at the trial court level, including a letter to the judge and other things that could be put in the matter, um, I think if the parties are willing to stip, you mentioned stipulations. I mean, if the parties all agree to something like that, um, that that could happen. I think if I was representing one side and wanted to get something into the record and the parties couldn't agree on a stipulation, the attorneys couldn't agree on a stipulation, then you may have difficulty of getting it in. But even then, you could serve objections to the proposed record on appeal, um, and you could probably get it in that way, perhaps, saying you wanted to, you, know, you proposed certain things needed to be in the record um, through the objections. Now, that's not the normal way, I think, of objections to the proposed record on appeal, um, but with the absence of another way to do it, because you could do it by stipulation, they won't agree to the stipulations, some recitation. Though I think the best practice really would be to have something put into the trial court file, whether it's even a letter to the judge um, or, or a proposed alternate order or something recognizing that what, what, what you're saying here, hearing here is there's no transcript of this, of what says it happened in chambers and this didn't actually happen if that's not what happened because what's before the court right now there's no evidence that it didn't actually that it actually happen. But if that's not sufficient for the court, then this order by itself doesn't stand. But I think it would be appropriate to stand. I do think that there's you know, there's no showing of, of a lack of prejudice. There's no challenge to the actual merits of the appeal in this case. Um, this child had been in uh, for over two years of custody at the time of the TPR hearing, and now we're uh, two years past that. And, you know, there were two bases of finding to terminate the parental rights of the mother, three bases uh, to the father, and the father did not appeal. Um, so there's nothing showing that, um, that these findings of fact or conclusions of law are actually being challenged. 
Um, and so, though these cases don't talk about a lack of prejudice, I think it's uh, something that could be considered here. Is there any prejudice that's been caused by the procedure in this case? Is just not something that's been addressed it, it, in the cases? Not, which is another question I was going to ask somebody. I interpret Wisnet in some of these earlier cases to make a failure to comply with Rule 63 jurisdictional. Is that, is that the way you read them? It, well, jurisdictional, right, because if the judge, if a different, like, if, if Rule 63 doesn't apply, the order doesn't, the it order, doesn't the, work. The order's void. So Rule 63 does have to uh, apply, or otherwise you're not going to have a formal order. You're right, that would be jurisdictional. But in terms of judge's abuse of discretion or other matters to review this matter, I don't think it's irrelevant about whether there's any issue about the contents of the order and any challenges to that. I think that could be something that the court could consider or could at least say, at least in this circumstance, we don't find there's an error. You know, you can leave open the question for a future decision as to whether, you know, that would change the result. If you were to uphold this decision, you could leave the question open as to whether the decision would be different if there was also show showing a prejudice based on the claim that they said that this wasn't appropriate. You'd have to find that this was an order within the jurisdiction and the discretion of the trial judge for you to be able to reach that decision, though. But I would submit that in the absence of, you know, any evidence that, that this material didn't happen, unless the court wants to say we think it's impossible that this happened, you know, it's just abuse of discretion because we don't think this ever happened, which would kind of requires speculation from the court. In the absence of that, I think that the, this sort of recitation, unless you're going to require a transcript, should be sufficient to, to allow the judge to issue his discretion. And then you're just reviewing for abuse of discretion under the facts that we have. Can the trial judge have reasonably determined that it was in his discretion to do it or not? And if he didn't, then you have to remand it for a further hearing. Thank you for the court's time this morning, unless there's any other questions. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Rebuttal? Uh, yes, thank you. Uh, so I think that Rule 52 might not specifically say that there's a, that there's, there's a requirement that findings be done in writing, but if they're not done in writing, then we, it's, it's a problem because either there needs to be some record of it, as has been pointed out by Justice Urban. If they're not done in writing, then they sort of just vanish into the air. So if they're not done in writing, then there should be a requirement they be done at least in open court with a court reporter there. Otherwise, we'll be quibbling back and forth of what was actually said. And if you get two attorneys taking notes but what a judge said, you're going to end up with two different, very different versions of what happened. So, so what should the judge have done here? Um, I think other than have this finding, should the judge have gone into more detail about what happened on the 28th, gone into more detail about how the order uh, uh, was presented to him. Uh, what does the judge do? I think the judge has to put something in there which says what happened, something to support. I, so. Well, why isn't that this was announced in chambers on the 28th day of August? Why isn't that adequate? Because the record does not support that that happened. We basically have the naked assertion of Judge Byrd that that happened. And well, but you do have a transcript where it appears that everybody agreed that they were going to get back together on the 28th. They agreed they were going to get back together, and, but only for the limited purpose of finding out how the judge ruled. 
if the judge was going to find in the best interest or not. Um, and I understand there's an argument here that just Judge Byrd could have called up Judge Houston and said, what happened? What were your findings? The problem with that is there's no reason for Judge Byrd to call Judge Houston before she retires because she's the judge. After she retires, if he calls her up, then she's making findings of fact, which she's not allowed to do. So any sort of conversation between the two of them doesn't really make any sense because either it's not required or it's not allowed. So in, in, in either situation, I think that the only thing that we can have here is that if the order was prepared ahead of time and it was okayed by Judge Houston, that's the only thing that is allowed in this situation and we have no evidence that that happened. Um, I, I, think think this I, heard, I think I heard your colleague indicate that the burden was on trial counsel to send, you know, put something in the record saying, oh, by the way, uh, what was found never happened. Uh, uh, is it the burden on the trial court or is it on trial counsel to put something in the record? Well, I think the burden is on the trial court to do things procedurally and jurisdictionally in the correct way because if this were, say, a a subject matter jurisdiction case. Um, I mean, if this was a termination of parental rights hearing that was held, say, in Superior Court before a Superior Court judge or in front of a magistrate, even if nobody objected, that wouldn't be allowed. There'd be no requirement to shift the burden to another party. And I think we have the same thing here, that it's simply not allowed. There's no mention in any of these cases of a prejudice requirement. No requirement that there be any kind of objection ahead of time. It's simple, the simple question is, was Rule 63 followed? Was Rule 52 followed? Was Rule 58 followed? If they're not followed, the burden does not shift to the other party to object to put something in the record. The rules have to be followed because either the court has authority to enter the order or the court doesn't. So that, that would be my response to that. Um, I don't think that there is a requirement that it be proven that it's impossible for something to happen. That's just a very, very high burden because there's always some conceivable way that Judge Byrd could have got these uh, findings ahead of time. Most of them don't make much sense. I mean, like I said, if Judge Byrd is conversing with Judge Houston, before Judge Houston retires, there's no reason for that conversation to take place. If Judge Byrd is at this August 28th hearing, why is Judge Byrd even there? That doesn't make any sense either. And then after December 31st, when Judge Houston is retired, there's no reason for these conversations to take place because Judge Houston no longer has any authority. If Judge Byrd picks up the phone and calls Judge Houston and says, hey, what would your finding have been about this? That's all well and good, except for Judge Houston has no authority to dictate findings at that point. I think either the findings have to be in writing ahead of time, or they have to be on the record and in an open hearing with a court reporter there. Anything else 
leads to this huge mess where we're dealing with competing memories, competing notes, competing versions of what happened. And that's just not, not a good way for things to be in this state. And unless there's further questions, I'm going to sit down. Thank you very much. Thank you, Council. Thank you to all Council. I, I know, again, y'all were uh, asked to be flexible last minute. Appreciate y'all coming up. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but uh, when I look around at the beauty of uh, what we have here, uh, sometimes it's, it's nice to get out of Wake County. So, uh, again, we appreciate y'all and appreciate the uh, folks for being here at this uh, historic occasion. So, Mr. Clerk. All rise.